great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. You can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Coming up in a few minutes, there's a scam that started roughly two years ago that got a little quiet and is now big again. I have a special warning for you coming up today's Clark Rage. And a little later yet, if you work for a nonprofit school system, something like that, you were offered a vastly inferior retirement plan known as a 403B. And I've talked about how awful they are for years, but have failed to give you good suggestions how to deal with them. And I've got some for you coming up. I want to talk right now about the job market is amazing. I don't know if you heard the report last week that one of the nation's railroads is offering big bonuses, roughly twenty-five grand is the ceiling on them, just to attract new workers because the labor shortage is so severe. And then there was an item in the Wall Street Journal that a number of communities in the Midwest are so starving for workers that they're offering bounties to people if they'll move to their communities. Most often the bounties are in the range of $5,000 just to get you to move somewhere where jobs are extremely plentiful and workers are not. You know, a lot of people who, when factories closed and all the rest in the Midwest, and it became known as the Rust Belt, established new lives in the South and the West and don't want to go back. Well, now communities and employers are dangling cash in different formats, different forms, to try to get you to come back. Uh, One community is offering money towards college. We've had that before. Was that Buffalo that did that before? trying to remember. There have been a number of communities that have offered college graduates a certain amount of loan forgiveness for college. Others offering money towards down payment on a house if you'll move to their area. Any of a number of attempts to try to get people to move because Americans move a lot less than we used to. And the likely reason for that, the number one reason in my mind, is that in the America of old, we were one-income households. Today, we're two-income households. And it's hard to get both couples, both members of a couple, in sync at the same time to relocate and find new jobs in the new location. And so that has made it more difficult for people to migrate around the country. I'm sure there are other factors, but that's the one that seems the most credible to me. And so offering you cash to, to come to an area maybe near where you were from or where you were from to get you back home is something that is very much on the table in so much of the Midwest. But wherever you are, a lot of employers are looking for workers. Target, 
recently said they're going to a $15 minimum wage in, I think it's 2020. Walmart now has an average hourly rate wage of nearly 14 an hour. The minimum starting rage, wage is 11 but employers cannot pay in most places around the country can't pay anywhere near the minimum wage which is 7 gosh i don't even know 7 is it 765 715 727 something it's the federal minimum wage it really hadn't been a relevant factor in enough time oh joel's writing it down for me 725 an hour thank you because of the need for employers to pay more so i just want you to know that if you are in a job that feels like you're never going anywhere in it get out there and see what opportunities there are and if you are someone who it works in your life to try a new place in the country because of the imbalance of jobs to workers in a lot of places in the country your skills that may make you this much money where you are now could make you this much plus 20 percent more 50 percent more whatever relocating somewhere else don't undervalue yourself chris is with us on the clark howard show hi chris hi clark i have a question for you about retirement i'm hoping you can help me I'll do the best I can. All right. So you've been my chief advisor for probably the past 20 years, um, so I'm, I'm counting on you here. Uh-oh. Um, Don't put any pressure <laughs> on me at all. Your entire rest of your life is on my shoulders right now. Yeah. So my main question is I'm trying to figure out exactly how much I need for retirement. Um, so my specific scenario is um, my husband and I are in our early 40s. Um, we make a good income together. We're around 170000 now. Um, That's a fantastic years, income. Thank you. Um, over the years, we, we've managed to save up about $290,000 um, in our 401k. Um, I have a, a small pension uh, of 27000 and my husband's a teacher, so he has a, a pension coming as well. Um, so we've got what we think we're, we're on track, um, you know, for our age, um, and we're putting in, um, an, in about 14% of my income, um, which is around 117. We're putting that into 401k, um, and that's between myself and my employer match. Um, but the question that we have um, is we're trying to figure out, is that enough um, and are we, you know, are we putting in too little? Are we putting in too much? Um, you know, we do have some other goals like travel and fun and things like that. And we're trying to balance this. And I, I really... You're not putting in know. too much. Don't, don't okay. worry that you're putting in too much. So okay. uh, this math, 20 years out from retirement, is not easy to calculate. But I want to tell you how you try to figure it out. Are you thinking about both retiring... Uh, what age in your 60s? Is that where you're thinking? Um, earlier, the better. I mean, we, we're we adventurous people. We'd love to retire early if possible. And how um, early is early? 60, I would say. If All right, we, so if age 60. Put a number on it. All right, so when you think about age 60, in order to cover what could be the remaining lifespan of one or both of you, you need a pretty big chunk of money saved, or you need to know where it's going to come from otherwise. 
So let's take the teacher pension. Yeah. How much of the income you'll need each month do you think will be covered by that pension in terms of, of a percent? Based We're not on, expecting it to be a very high pension, so I imagine maybe 25%. All right, that's a problem. So we're getting 25% from that. And your husband's not eligible for Social Security or is? In his, he's not. He's not. So no Social Security checks. So this is really the equivalent of the replacement for Social Security, that pension, right? Right, right. Yep, that's, what, that's how I understand it for our state. Right, so you got to make up uh, not fully 75% of your income, but close to it, because there are some expenses you don't have, not commuting and not having to buy work clothes and that kind of stuff. But you've got a substantial gap there that you're hoping to cover. You have a little pension. You said you'll have Social Security. Yep. And you also will have to live the remainder of the money from what you're saving. And so of the 170 approximately that you make per year, what's your lifestyle cost? Um, we, we have no debt. Um, we do have a mortgage. It's about 2300 a month, so that's our biggest payment. And the rest of it is, is just we, we live pretty modestly, um, but we do like to travel. So if we have some extra money, we, we like to take a nice big trip every year. Will you have that home paid off by age 60? Yes. Okay, that's good. So that twenty three hundred minus whatever's taxes and insurance that goes away. Yep. So your your actual cost of living will go down once that mortgage is paid off. You know, I'm thinking of all the moving parts here, and I don't want to uh, say you're saving enough or not saving enough. I want you to go by one to two hours of time from somebody who's a member of the Garrett Planning Network. Okay. And they'll give you homework assignments, filling out paperwork about what you've got and that kind of thing, and then your goals, and then go meet with that individual and go over what you're trying to do to retire by age 60, and they'll be able to give you the best possible estimate plugging in all the parts of your picture if you're on target or not. Okay, you've heard me mention, if you've listened for a long time, you've heard me mention Garrett Planning Network, I assume. Absolutely, I have. And so I think yours is like the ideal situation with a clear goal you're trying to achieve and somewhere between 15 and 20 years to achieve it. You're at the mid-career point. You want the Garrett person. Perfect. So do that, and let's see uh, if they find you are well on target. And I think a couple hours of time will be enough for you to know that. And best to you continuing to build towards that future you both want. Colin is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Colin. Colin, you are doing something I wish a lot more people would do, and that is look at disability insurance, which most people won't buy but they need. That's right. Well, I hear you recommend it a lot, so I took your advice, and I've been looking into it, and I just had a few questions. Well, hit me with uh, what you have as questions, and let's see how good I am at answering them. Well, the, the biggest one is, um, seems like all the policies I'm looking at, they all offer the own occupation rider. Yeah. And I've, I've read a little bit about it, but it seems like everything I can find 
is talking about doctors and lawyers and real specialized, skilled people that would need that rider. So I was trying to figure out if it's something I should consider. Yeah, so the idea of own occupation is why disability insurance for someone, let's say, like a neurologist or someone who's a specialist as a lawyer, or really any kind of lawyer would probably be, where there's if they become unable to perform that kind of work because of a disability, there's really nothing else that would equate to the years they went in school, the training that they have, the years of experience providing services as a doctor or lawyer or something like that. And that's why own occupation is key to a disability policy for someone who has a specialized skill or training. What is it that your background is? Uh, well, I just have a bachelor's degree. But I'm a project manager for a general contractor. Um, so I just... So your uh, skills are likely transferable to other industries, you would say, or no? Yeah, I mean, you know, pr- you know project manager, obviously, there'd be some learning, but yes, in general, probably. So in that case, you would not likely need own occupation. Okay. Now, the problem after the fact depends a lot, if you were to become disabled, on an insurer acting in good faith. So if you're used to, because of what you do and the years you have on it, earning a certain level of income, Mm -hmm. an insurance company that fails to act in good faith will say, well, you can go do blah, 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 and you'll say, well, that only pays um, so much per hour, and I'm used to making whatever, and they'll say, well, so what? So that is the advantage of own occupation, is you don't have to worry about an insurer failing to act in good faith. Okay. So that, it adds, though, a significant cost, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, I guess it's all relative, but in this case, it was, I think, 150 bucks a year or something like that, so. Versus a total premium of what? Uh, Ballpark around, I think, 1100 uh, gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack and say if that's the only premium decrease, just because you never know how an insurer is going to behave, I think it'd be worth you paying that extra amount for the rider, so you don't get into a battle with them about what you are in fact capable of doing or not capable of doing. Today's Clark Rageous moment is a key heads up for you: a scam that first reared its ugly head two years ago is roaring right now in various spots in the country, I need to make sure you are aware that you don't get taken by this ripoff. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rages moment. Read a report in the Kansas City Star that there's a big uptick in the utility scam where you get a call from somebody pretending to be from your power provider or if you have a natural gas provider where you live from there, from that provider, saying that your bill is unpaid and you're having a utility shut off, but you can avoid it by paying right now. And depending on the scamsters and where they operate in the country, they may have a fair amount of information about you to really nothing at all, and they're just running a simple scam, or they have a lot of detail about you, maybe even things like down to your account number. Know that if you ever receive a call like this, the odds are overwhelming that it is bogus, that the people are not from a utility company that serves you. But 
the way you figure that out is you say to the individual calling you, thank you so much for the information, have a great day, hang up, and then you call the number on your normal bill from the utility company and check out to see if there is actually any problem with your service, with your payments, your bill, anything like that. What you'll find out probably 100% of the time is there is no issue leading to an immediate cutoff and you have avoided being taken. And make sure family members know about this, particularly older family members who may be more trusting and more likely to give money to a crook over the phone. Glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show where you learn ways to save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. And you can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Oh, we got to talk here. You know, I have been so upset for as many years as I can remember about how teachers and others that work in nonprofit hospitals, nonprofit organizations, were set up by the U.S. Congress to get ripped off on retirement plans. And there was this special vehicle used to cheat teachers and those at nonprofits, college professors, that sort of thing, called a 403B plan, where people who work at for-profit companies, the default choice is a 401K, the most common choice for people working as school teachers or nonprofits is the 403B, which is vastly inferior, has massive fees, massive expenses, terrible investment choices, and it's not unusual for a teacher putting money into a 403B plan to pay 25 times the expenses of a friend of that teacher putting money into an employer-provided 401K. To me, it's a national scandal. We've seen the unhappiness of teachers in state after state about their compensation. One thing that could be improved is to get rid of the hoodlums that offer the horrendous 403B plans to school systems around the country. But for you, what I want you to know, teachers are great at educating students. Now I want you to educate yourself. And there's a website that is devoted to making sure you know how these plans work and how to protect yourself in a 403B, and even when you should walk away from one being offered to you by the nonprofit you work for, the hospital, or the school system. The website is 403BWISE, W-I-S-E, 403BWISE.com. They even have a directory of advisors that meet fiduciary standard, meaning that you pay them to evaluate your specific plan and tell you if you should bail on it, stay in it, or what you should do differently with your plan. And I think that's cool because this is not a real profitable endeavor for the financial advisors willing 
to make themselves available to help teachers, but I'm glad that this is something that is available to you. Be very aware that most often for a teacher, the 403B plan you'll be offered is so pitiful, so awful, so rotten, so terrible. How many other words can I use to get it into your mind that you're being cheated? That usually you're better off just setting up your own Roth IRA and contributing to it instead of having somebody take advantage of you in these horrendous 403B plans. And I've got a guide at Clark.com that walks you through how to set up an ultra-low-cost Roth IRA, which is, I would guess, 100% of the time, a better choice than the 403B that you'll be offered by your school system or a teacher's union. Know that these things are poison to your pocketbook, and it is a national outrage and scandal that on top of everything else, that we don't even allow teachers to have access to good retirement plans, and no excuse for it. The only really great provider I know of of 403Bs is TIA, TIAA.org, which is not available in most school districts in the country because they don't play a dirty game trying to get into school districts or to get into a union plan. And so that's a shame. College professors, college administrators, college staffs, overwhelmingly around the country have access to TIA. But teachers, kindergarten through 12th, usually don't. Jim joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. How are you? Wonderful. Jim, I understand you want to talk about what they call in short, net newt. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I've heard you support it in the past, which I was a little surprised because I, I trust everything you say and I know you're so well informed, but I've, I don't have the greatest opinion of net neutrality because I feel like it interferes with the free market and I think that's in the consumer's best interest. Well, let's it, first set the table and I'm going to try to define it in simple terms, and if you feel like my definition needs to be modified, then I'd like you to have a stab at it, okay? Okay. So net neutrality is uh, was the law of the land till recently, and what it required is that monopoly cable companies and monopoly local phone companies would not be able to put up toll gates on the Internet and not be able to choose what traffic, what websites you'd be able to go to, what speed you'd be able to access them, and that they would be in a position to uh, being life and death over a new website starting up by making it cost prohibitive for them to provide good service to a customer. So the idea uh. of net neutrality was that all traffic that going over one of the monopolies lines would have to be treated equally. Okay. Oh, it was my understanding that it's not uh, uh, exclusive to monopolies because people have talked about this applying to Netflix, and Netflix is not a monopoly, and 
a, a lot of I have several local internet providers that I believe would be subject to this. And if they were treated as a utility the same as like my gas or electricity or water, I would just have one option as I do with all of those utilities and and there would be there would be more expense because of the lack of competition. Am I not understanding that right? Well, no, let me let me explain. So you have the what are called ISPs, which is the monopoly cable company and the monopoly phone company. And some people have an option of each. Some only have one available where they are. Some people don't have either. But this is about them and how they treat Netflix or any website, how they treat my website, Clark.com. So today, if let's say you wanted to start Jim's video service and you wanted to complete, compete with Netflix, well, uh-huh. the problem without net neutrality is that the monopoly cable company or monopoly phone company might say, well, Jim, if you don't want people to have a bad video experience, you're going to have to pay us to stream your product over to our customers. Uh So it's about, for me, it's, you know, somebody like Google or or, um, Netflix or whoever, they can afford to pay for the toll bridges, the toll gates. Uh What I'm concerned about is, let's say there's, that I'm saying stuff about uh, cable that the cable companies don't like, and so they block people from seeing Clark.com, which without net neutrality they would be able to do. They'd be able to censor content. Or if you want to start a new service competing with a big guy player, and you don't have the, you, it takes all the money you got to start the service. And then the cable company or phone company says, well, nobody's going to be able to watch your videos, Jim, because you're not paying the fee. Right. Okay, I, I can see it from that perspective, and that does make sense. I hadn't heard that, that uh, before, but in my area, I have four different options for ISPs, and I live in a small town. Do you you have four ISPs available? Yes. You may be the only person in America. That's fantastic. Well, uh, maybe I don't understand ISP correctly. I could have done more research, I suppose. But if there's an Internet provider, for instance, well, I guess I can't name companies. but Oh, go ahead in this case because I need to have clarity here. Like in my area, there's Frontier and Time Warner, and then there's little companies like EL Internet, and there's a couple other little guys around. Uh, HughesNet is another one. Now, HughesNet, um, HughesNet, I should explain that. That is a satellite service for people who generally don't have a traditional wired internet available to their home. Okay. And it's a more expensive choice that um, is great that it exists, but anybody who lives in an area where they have a choice of a wired one, like uh, Frontier versus having HughesNet would pick the wired one, the Frontier. Uh, I guess I live in a little town of Bonners Ferry, Idaho, and I would be more concerned about the small businesses like EL Internet is their name. And I believe that they're an ISP, and I would be concerned that they're that the extra red tape that they would have to go through and possibly even hiring another person to deal with all these extra regulations would hurt them as a small business that's where my concern comes in that is a perfectly valid point and you know so often when big broad brush regulations are written 
it harms the small entrepreneur trying to compete against the big players. And, you know, we've seen this in banking, where there have been so many banking rules set up that it's made the big banks bigger because small banks have said, we can't deal with all those rules. And they, they sell themselves to somebody else or whatever. And so that is a very valid point. Okay. So I understand that. I guess a person just has to weigh those pros and cons. And I've talked to uh, people with one of the big internet service providers, and they say that, that I'm completely paranoid and I'm, that I'm wrong about this and that it's not going to play out ugly like I worry about. Uh-huh. But we'll see over time because it looks like we're going to have plenty of time to test who's right and who's wrong because it looks pretty clear that the monopoly local phone companies and the monopoly cable companies are going to be able to do what they want and we'll see if they behave or not. And I appreciate so much you calling about it because it's a topic, it's not the easiest in the world to get through because it is confusing. Roseanne is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Roseanne. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. So you are yet another person who's green with envy, who heard me, you hear me on Bill Handel? I do. And you heard me talk about how I got this magnificent five-star hotel in Paris for 90 euro, the equivalent of $110 a night. And I'm very jealous, yes. Well, since I said that, there have been so many people, Roseanne, who said, all right, how do you really do that, Clark? Are you making that up? Did you really do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, too. Okay, so I have a, a long-developed process about how I scarf deals on Priceline. And it, it is an art mixed with science to figure out how to beat the system and get these really great deals on Priceline. I'm going to a wedding next weekend and I'm paying $67 for my hotel at the wedding. That's too much, isn't it? I should be paying less, right? Never anywhere that I know of. Well, and I just stayed in your hometown, your home metro area, Los Angeles, at a Renaissance hotel for 104 a night on a Priceline wow. deal. Wow. So what's the secret? Okay, so I have at Clark.com, I have a guide to how you book rooms on Priceline and Hotwire. Uh-huh. And how you might be even be able to decode what hotel it is you'd be getting. Okay. But as a general rule, with Hotwire, never go below four stars and never go below a recommended hotel rating of 90%. Oh, okay, okay. With Priceline, never go below three and a half stars and never below a guest rating of 80%. All right. And if you do, if you do nothing else and do those two things, uh-huh. you will almost 100% of the time be very happy with where you stay. Now, what you heard me talk about with Bill is how I get to a full scalpel level 
where I'm able most of the time to guess in advance what hotel I'm going to be staying at. Uh-huh. And that's like postgraduate school for booking on Priceline. <laughs> and I think I'm going to add a write-up because how many people have asked me about that since that appearance with Bill Handel? I'm going to write up how I go to postgraduate Priceline school and how well, I do it. hotels are so expensive. So yeah, expensive. I know. I'm actually a lot of times having to pay more than 100 a night which is more than I want to pay. You and me both. Yeah, but I do get a lot of rooms like this $67 room I have coming up next weekend. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to try it. Okay, so go read my briefing, and hopefully you'll be able to get those same kind of deals. Okay, thanks, Clark. Have a great day. Okay, you too. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com. Producer Joel, ask it for you. All right, Clark. Jerry wrote in and said, I plan to donate a car to charity. This is my first car donation, and so naturally I'm concerned about the process. Is this something I should be doing? So I got a lot of questions about donating cars to charity, and it's something you do because you love the spirit and effort of what that charity does. It's not an efficient way, generally, for you to dispose of a car other than it eliminates hassle because the IRS strictly limits the value that you can deduct on your taxes for the vehicle donation. What generally will be better if it's a, if it's a clunker is sell the car and then donate the cash proceeds to the charity of your choice if you would like to be able to get a meaningful deduction on your taxes. But if you just want to do something good for somebody and donate a car, make sure that the organization you're going to donate to is a legitimate charity that you believe works efficiently and that you believe in their mission before you donate. But I can tell you, donating a car is not about the charitable deduction because of the strict IRS rules. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. I appreciate you spending part of your day with us here on The Clark Howard Show. I want you to know that if you need consumer advice, we're here to serve you off-air for free, nine hours a day. If you go to Clark.com and go down the home screen, you'll see a section, Consumer Help and Tools. Click on Consumer Action Center and you can get that free off-the-air advice.